right. Hey, good morning again. If you will, turn to Acts 14. Acts 14. We are going to be picking up where we left off at the beginning of the summer, finishing out the book of Acts. So I appreciate if you'll turn there. And we'll flip back to Acts 1 for just a moment, just to review a few things, and then head into it. So make sure you pray for my wife and I today, because today uh, the Redskins and the Cowboys play. So... Um, you need, to, you need to pray for her more, okay, because I still want her to love me after we destroy them. No, I'm just joking. Just joking. I'm just joking. I'm just, you know what's going to happen, right? You know what's going to happen now, right, because I just did that. Yeah, yeah. Pride comes before the fall. I get it. Yeah, I, I hear you saying so. But you guys do like the new blue cups, right? They look great with a star on them, too, so I'm just saying, just saying, so. We will never get burgundy ones, I promise you. No, I'm just joking. All right. Hey, guys. Um, again, I appreciate if you're here for the first time. We hope you feel loved and invited and welcomed. And we, we just hope that you'll feel a sense of genuineness and authenticity here. Uh, we're trying to be everything we can be like Jesus. And we're trying to create a place where it's okay not to be okay. It's just not okay to stay there because we're all broken. We all leak out in different ways, if you will. And we need God to fix that, meet us here, and meet us in community, and meet us individually, for God to work those things out in our lives. So um, I'm going to take a few minutes of the sermon just to review. Um, we've, it's been a while. We went through all the letters this summer Paul wrote, and so we're going to go back and revisit this idea of the, the book of Acts. It's really this idea of an unstoppable movement. Uh, Jesus said that um, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church, and so it's this idea that... The kingdom of God is coming, has come, and is coming, right? And so the church is the vehicle by which God advances his kingdom. And so there is this unstoppable force, this idea of being, doing, and going. And we look at the author, understanding that the book of Acts is the second part of a unified volume. So it's the second half. So you had Luke, and now you have the book of Acts. And what you have really is this continuation of you, you see what Jesus did and Luke you see the beginning of Acts what Jesus did but then you see continuing the works and the the spirit of the living God working through the uh, the church and even now if you will this idea of Acts 29 the ch church continues the kingdom of God continues to advance in our lives I mean think about it that at the day of Pentecost and when thousands came to faith we if you will are spiritual ancestors of them Think about that. That's incredible, right? I mean, just a handful of believers, now over 2 billion uh, people on the planet confess Jesus. And that's just phenomenal. And of course, all the billions of people between then and now have come to faith in Jesus. Um, also understand that Luke uh, was a traveling co-worker of Paul. And again, it's this idea that the kingdom of God, uh, earth on earth as it is in heaven, that, that idea of the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples. And so through Jesus, through his spirit, through the church. And understand that the book is both prescriptive and descriptive. So in other words, there are things that are just described in the book of Acts. This is how it worked. It's not necessarily for us to follow a formula, but there's other things that are very, very clearly laid out, like plurality of elders. And we'll talk about that a little bit today. But this idea of what the church should look like and what the kingdom of God should look like, right? So this is both prescriptive and descriptive. And then the book of Acts is filled with signs and wonders, tongues, prophetic words, healing the sick, even raising the dead. But that's not the point of the book. 
The point of the book is this idea of sharing the good news both in word and in deed, right? And it's this idea of building up a diverse community that is both equal and generous, both diverse, right, but also acting in this idea of oneness. And it's also this idea of trust in the power and guidance of the Holy Spirit, which we kind of treat the Holy Spirit like an it. It's not. It's the third person of the Trinity, right? And so we need the Holy Spirit in our lives daily, moment by moment. And we also need him in the life of the church, in the life of the kingdom of God. Um, so when we, when we talk about this idea of com uh, community, we see basically it's kind of laid out. The first couple, probably chapters 2 through 7, is this really this idea of Jerusalem. So we see the church, the kingdom of God expand. Think about almost like a, a nuclear bomb going off. It's the epicenter, right? It just explodes there. But then we see chapters 8 through 12, we see Judea and Samaria. And then we, what we see is beginning, the Gentiles begin to come in, the church. It was just Jews primarily, the first several chapters. And now what we see is when we left off chapter 13 at the beginning of the summer, now we're going to 14, is this idea to the ends of the earth. And so we see that the gospel is for all, all mankind, every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every culture. And this is what we begin to see. So today, if you're keeping notes, I want you to write down, um, well, I guess the overall theme of the book is this idea that Jesus is leading his people by the Spirit to go out into the world and invite all nations to live under his reign. Okay, Now that's one of the things that we don't quite get, I think, in the church is this idea of the kingdom of God. And if you see the beginning of chapter 1 in, in uh, Acts, we really see this. We see Jesus, it says, goes back. He presented himself alive to after them, after his sufferings by many proofs, appearing to them for 40 days and speaking about what? The kingdom of God. And so it's this idea of the kingdom of God. Well, what is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is simply this. It's God's people in God's place under God's rule through Jesus, okay? So it's God's people under God's, um, in God's place under God's rule through Jesus. See, the kingdom has come and is coming. The, co the kingdom is here and is still coming later. And see, understanding that God, through Christ, defeated destiny in the grave, but we still battle with our flesh and blood, right? I mean, we still battle with rulers and authorities, right? We still battle with this, this old flesh. So it's both has come and is coming. Both he has saved us and he is saving us. So he has made us right, but he's sanctifying us. So it's this idea that the kingdom has come, but is coming as well. So let me review, because we're going to hit, we're going to really just concentrate on uh, verses 21 through 28 in chapter 14. So what I need to do is I need to highlight a little bit so you know what's going on at the beginning of the chapter so you can understand the latter part of the chapter uh, more clearly. So I want to I highlight that. Basically what we see is chapter before this, we see Paul and Barnabas set aside after prayer and fasting, laid hands on them, and he, uh, they went to Pisidia and Antioch. And what happens is basically what happened with the, the original church and the real, original disciples and apostles, they basically, when they went to the synagogues, they taught and they went from the very beginning and taught all through the Old Testament and said, this is the Messiah who has come. You, you killed him, but he rose again, and you need to believe in him. 
He's given you the gift of the Holy Spirit to live out and advance his kingdom. And so we see this. And of course, each time, almost every time we see when he goes to the synagogues, what happens? He gets resistance. And by the way, I think in the church and even in our individual lives, we forget that we think if it goes easy and it's smooth, it must be God's will, right? Well, if you look at Paul's life, that's not what happened. If you look at the life of Jesus, that's not what happened. In fact, many times you can probably guarantee that you are going the right direction when you get great resistance, okay? Now, I'm not talking about a life that just makes terrible mistake after terrible mistake. Well, you know, I'm, I'm on my fifth divorce and, you know, I'm, you know I'm, I get drunk every night. We're not talking about that, okay? Now, again, if you're here divorced four times, God loves you and we love you. But don't sit there and say, because I've got all these bad things happening in my life and I'm making bad decisions, that it's God's will. What I'm saying is this. When you're trying to follow Jesus and you're trying to live for him, just because you get resistance doesn't mean it's not God's will. Okay? Because many times, as we'll see at the end of this chapter, Paul talks about this idea that you must go through tribulations as you walk through the inner, as you enter through the kingdom of God. Okay? So what they do is we see Paul... Um, and we see them going in again to the synagogues in Iconia, okay? And we see them both go to the Jews and the Gentiles. As they enter in, they begin again to preach the gospel. They begin to share Paul and Barnabas in Iconia. And what happens is we see both Jews and Gentiles begin to believe. But immediately we see a portion of the Jews begin to poison the minds of those around him. What happens? They raise up a crowd, right, to push back against Paul and Barnabas. So they had to flee to uh, Lystra and Derby and Laconia. And then they, Lystra, a man was healed when they went into the city. He had been lame from birth and he was there asking for help. And what did Paul do? He spoke healing over him and he, he was born again. I mean, not born again. He was healed. I'm sorry. He was healed of his disease, he was healed of his, um, his him being lame. He, it says that he actually stood up and began to walk. And what happened was the, the leaders in that day, they were, they were worshiping these Greek gods, they, uh, like Zeus. Okay? And what happens was they, they believed that Paul and Barnabas were basically gods coming down and doing these things. And what happened was they began to worship. Paul and Barnabas. And Paul and Barnabas didn't know the language, but once they found out what was going on, they realized, holy cow, we're just mere men. What are they doing? It says they tore their clothes. They were upset. And guess what happened? Just like anything else, you put worship on and it doesn't respond the way you want it. You turn on it. Isn't it funny? We worship things like, you know, just talking about my team, right? I'm going to love my team, but if they start losing, eventually I'm going to be like, what is wrong with them? They stink, right? I mean, it's how quick, it's how quick we how quick we turn on these things that we make gods. Isn't it crazy to me that God says, uh, "Don't, don't worship idols," right? And we have a show that's probably been one of the best shows, or if you will, the uh, most popular shows in the country for like 15 years, what, called American Idol, right? Well, we, we worship these people's voices and their entertainment factor. Right? It would be like, to me, going to the doctor 
And let's say you have this terrible disease and he cuts it out of you and, and you get better till you turn around and worship in the scalpel. That would be stupid, right? It's just a tool in the hands of the doctor. And how we worship things, we, we worship the created over the creator. And so we see this happening over and over again in our culture. We worship things that are not meant to worship. In fact, if you really hate someone, don't, don't speak bad of them. Just worship them. You'll ruin them. You will. I mean, think about it. Think about in our culture, in our society today, Hollywood stars, athletes, you know, politicians. What happens when we begin to make them idols in our life, they, they can't hold under the weight of it. They were never meant to be gods, and they fall under the weight of that. And that's what happens, even in our own lives. When we put trust in something other than the source of life, Jesus Christ, the one triune God, they cannot hold under the weight of that. And this is what we see in this. They turn on Paul and Barnabas. It's interesting to me, too, that in Lystra uh, lived a woman named Lois and her daughter Eunice, who happened to be the grandmother and mother of Timothy. And so there's a high chance that Timothy may have came to faith in this first journey here, which is really interesting as we read through the uh, New Testament. Let me go ahead and read Acts 14, 21 through 28. You see these things happen, and at the end, right before this, what we see too is when they turn on Paul and Barnabas, they literally stoned Paul. Now, we're not talking about going to California and busting one out. We're saying, like, we're talking about rocks, okay? We're talking about boulders where they would throw them at them and hit them primarily for the head to kill them, right? And so we're saying that he was stoned. Literally, I can imagine probably just someone got a really good one and knocked him out cold. They thought he was dead. They dragged him outside the city, probably where the dead bodies are, are laid and left him for dead. And the disciples show up. He raises back up the life and he goes back in the city. Think about that for a moment. Think about that for a moment. You just got stoned by these guys, and you get up and you go right back in the same city. And then it says they moved on uh, to Derby. So, so let's pick up in uh, verse 21. It says this, And when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconia and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. There it is, right? You're going to face hard times. Following Jesus is the hardest thing I've ever done. Living for God is the hardest thing I've ever done. It's brought me the most joy, the most contentment, the most peace. But it's not for the faint in heart, okay? And when they appointed the elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they have believed. By the way, just to, I'm not going to teach necessarily on this subject, but the idea that everywhere Paul went, he set up a church, he did the same formula every time. Okay? This is prescriptive, where he set up elders and leaders of the church, anointed them, prayed over them. Sometimes they prayed and fasted, it says, to find out who those people were, and then they launched them out. They empowered them to lead the church. Now, obviously, all through the the writings, we see a lot of Paul having to correct leaders, correct the church, right? And that's part of it. That's part of the discipleship process. But this is what we see 
prescriptive in, in all as, as Paul journeys through uh, these different cities. And when they appointed the elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Then they passed through uh, Pisidia and went to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went to Adaliah. And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that, had, that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. So if you're writing down notes today, this is the big idea today. Your view of God's kingdom and understanding of the gospel has a direct impact on how you make disciples. Okay? I know it just says view of God, but if you want to add God's kingdom, that'd be great. Okay? God's kingdom and understanding of the gospel has direct impact. So what we see here is in the previous part of the chapter, we see these religious people and we see them getting angry at Paul and Barnabas because they're advancing the kingdom of God. Isn't it funny that one of the number one proponents, our enemies, or conflicts to the gospel and to the kingdom of God and the church can be religious people? Isn't that interesting? Why? Because they're trying to set up a ladder, and God's not in business to set up ladders. That's what self-righteous people do. Because they want to build a ladder and stand on it. The higher the ladder, the greater the fall. We're all level at the foot of the cross. We're saved by grace through faith. It is not of ourselves. So we see this happening. We also see this idea of the, the attack or the resistance of the Gentiles. Both non-believers and those uh, who may have had maybe some view of God or a God's. So they weren't believers in Jesus, the one true living God, but they had some type of religious activity in their life. But also, if you will, the non-believers, the atheists, okay, we see this. Isn't it funny that to me, we have in our society people that want to protest against something they say is dead? I mean, what if all of a sudden, I hope it's not a spoiler alert, but if, what if I all of a sudden started a movement that I wanted to protest against the Easter Bunny? And I wanted to say, the Easter Bunny's dead, and uh, we should ban all Easter eggs, and I want to get rid of anything that uh, the schools put up that resembles the Easter egg or the bunny, uh, any of that, right? I mean, well, that would be ludicrous. I mean, I hope no one still believes in the Easter Bunny, but it's, it's this idea that Easter Bunny doesn't exist. Why would it bother me? But we have a whole movement in our society that is anti-God, who say they don't believe in God and there's no such thing as God. Why are you fearful of God then, right? Isn't it funny how we see that in society? And then we even see, again, the Gentiles that are religious, again, because they're trying to just add Jesus to their pile of gods or just another God. I, I had a conversation several months ago, uh, a short conversation with a doctor, and I thought because of the conversation we were having, Maybe she was a believer, and I said, you're a follower of Jesus, and she, her statement was, he's one of my gods. And, 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 and that's not derogatory to that person, but I wish I had a moment, and I still pray that God will give me an opportunity 
to say, if you believe in Jesus, he is the only God you need, right? He is the only God you need. So I believe, though, many times the church's doctrine and how we teach salvation and grace, in some cases, may actually prevent us from creating an expectation that we both need to be disciples and we need to make disciples. So let me explain a little bit what I mean. I, I can see in our society today someone who can uh, profess that they're a Christian yet live under the impression that they don't need to actually follow Jesus or be a follower or a disciple. It's almost seen as an add-on or a bonus. It's not really a choice. It's not even a, I mean, I'm sorry, it's a choice. It's not really a demand. It's not a requirement. Being a Christian today, unfortunately, has little connection with the biblical idea that are formed in the image and identity of Christ. In other words, you can become a Christian and not follow Jesus. In the end, it really doesn't matter. That's what I believe many of our te teach teachers are teaching, our culture, is that sometimes you even say that you're a Christian, that has negative impressions and feelings. Why? Because people said they follow Jesus, but they're not really living it out. I was with someone recently uh, that's in our county, and he, he has a position of authority in our county. And I was having a meal with him, and as I was talking to him, I was sharing all the things that God's doing and how I want a greater partnership. And it was interesting in this because in the conversation, he shared with me how his position, he was trying to help someone in the school and a student in the school. And as he was trying to help the student in the school, he was trying to do everything he could to build an environment around that kid for success. But because it didn't fit the idea of the individual who was the guardian for that child, they walked out of the meeting. They sh this is great. He actually showed up at their church and went to love on them and went to maybe find a different avenue where they could find. And that person wouldn't even shake his hand when walking in the door. And you know what he said to me? He said this. How can that person say that, they, that God loves me and when I show up, they don't give me any love? Yeah? So uh, what I'm saying here is this. People see and they experience Jesus through us. What are, what are we doing for people around us that we're showing them Jesus? In other words, maybe Jesus, the only Jesus they'll ever see, the only Jesus they'll ever experience is you. And the fact that maybe we need to make Jesus more attractive. I'm not, talking about, I'm not talking about changing the Bible. I'm not talking about changing our views on things. What I'm saying is people are attracted to Jesus because they're attracted to the Jesus in you, right? And so as, as we talk about this, as we work through this, I want us really to think about this. Many are teaching we're saved from hell, but they're not teaching that you're saved to Jesus and his mission to fill his world in his Father's glory. So let me describe to you kind of some of the areas that this happens. One is this idea, what I would say is cheap grace. Just pray a prayer, get your ticket out of hell free, and you're good. Nothing needs to change. You can kind of, you can even walk up and get dunked in the water. And that's, that's my ticket, right? Well, when you look at the New Testament, you look at the life of Jesus, that's not salvation. That's not being born again. I mean, think about this. Think about for a moment that you are a, a wealthy person in a kingdom that is very poor. And you go down and they're street kids and all they've known is living on the streets. They have no one 
to shepherd them. They have no one to guide them. And always do, it's all about getting the next thing. It's all about cheating and stealing and grabbing just to get the next morsel, right? And that's all they've experienced. And you go down with grace and mercy and you say, listen, I don't want to just bring you to my house and clean you up, but I want to make you my child. And instead of enjoying the kingdom, enjoying all the lavish things that you can give to them, they just want to run and go back to the streets. Guess what? They don't understand what's just happened, do they? And I think many times in the church, we don't understand the kingdom of God. We don't understand what the gospel is. We don't understand what God is wanting to do in our lives. He doesn't want to just give us cheap, cheap grace. He wants to have a relationship with us. He wants us to be one of his sons, one of his daughters. It's also this idea, I would say, of social gospel that's taught many times. We just accommodate to the culture. We just serve the needy. Truth is optional. We just really don't know what that is, right? Or maybe it's this idea of the prosperity gospel. We just name it and claim it. If I just align myself with the principles, then God's going to shower down blessings and fill my bank account, right? Or give me what I deserve, almost like a genie in a bottle, or maybe it's this idea of a consumer gospel where he just meets my needs. I'm, I'm just impatient and I just need more and more. It's, it's almost like Jesus is a self-help Jesus. In other words, there's this term that's being used more and more. It's this idea of a moralistic therapeutic deism. In other words, these 12 steps, you do these and you're good. I don't need a relationship with God. I just need Jesus to make me a better person. I just need him to get me out of this jam. I just need him to help me find my best life <laughs> right and that's not what Jesus came Jesus came not just to save us to make us one of his sons and daughters and now we begin ambassadors for him we begin to live out so the whole book of Acts is about living out this kingdom so we can bring heaven to earth living it out and then there's this other deal of this self-righteous mentality self-righteous gospel that if we just again have these three little doctrines and we're good and we think we're better than everybody else. And again, we begin to build these ladders. What Jesus is preaching is this idea of the kingdom. The kingdom is coming. The kingdom has come and is coming. So come and follow me. Live for Jesus. Become a follower of Jesus. See, conversion and discipleship and being a disciple and disciple maker are really two sides of the same coins. Much like James and Paul where he says it's both declaration and demonstration of your faith. Paul says we're saved by grace through faith. It's not of ourselves. James says unless you have faith without works is dead. So in other words, true faith is an action faith. So it's both declaration and demonstration. And what I believe Paul is demonstrating for us here is this, that if you're going to be converted and be born again, you also are a disciple you're also being discipled. You're also a disciple maker. See things. See, conversion is when you become a Christian, you're born again. A disciple is someone who has decided to follow and learn from Jesus and to become like Jesus, to be involved in what Jesus is involved in, in his mission in the world, to be a learner, a student, and an apprentice. Jesus, I'm sorry, discipleship is what happens after you become converted, after you become a follower in Jesus follower of Jesus. Discipleship was the process or condition of which where in my life I have decided to follow Jesus. But see, Jesus calls us to be disciple makers. Remember all the way back in Matthew, Matthew 28? What did he say? Do you guys remember that? 
Matthew 28, he says this, 16 through 20, he says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountains to which Jesus had directed them. And when he saw them, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given. In other words, I'm giving you the kings to the kingdom. I'm going to give you the power of the Holy Spirit, by which not only can you live by, but now you can be a witness, you can be a proclaimer. And by the way, that idea of witness or testimony also brings this idea of martyr. That means there are going to be times of suffering. Sometimes that's suffering emotionally for the kingdom. Sometimes it's not being liked or being accepted. Sometimes it's literally physical suffering. So it's this idea that we're to be ambassadors, we're to be witnesses, but we're given the keys to the kingdom. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all they have commanded, and behold, I am with you to the end of the age. So he says, go. Now, why do you not say go and be disciples? Because they were already disciples. They'd already seen it modeled for three and a half years. They knew what it meant to be a disciple. They followed Jesus everywhere. They saw him do miracles. They got sent out. So it was almost this process. Jesus said, come and watch me. And as you watch me, come in beside me and do ministry with me together. And then after that, I'm going to watch you do ministry. I'm going to send you out. And guess what? I'm going to be leaving, and I'm going to send you the power of the Holy Spirit, and you'll do even greater things than I did. What is that greater thing? It's salvation. I mean, God fulfilled through Jesus the work of salvation. Now we get to see hearts of Stones turn to hearts of flesh. Why? Through the power of the Holy Spirit. You literally get to become fully alive how you were meant to be. This is what we see. We see Jesus saying, not just go and make converts. Go and make disciples. What? Baptizing them, this evidence that there is salvation. Also, after conversion, as teaching them to obey everything I commanded you. In other words, there's this lifelong process of learning and growing and being a follower of Jesus. This is what we see. Jesus calls us to be disciple makers. See, there's not levels of being a Christian. Now, there's maturity levels, I think. There's maturity that when you're a new believer, you're kind of like the Bible describes, you're like this babe in Christ, and so you still got to be cleaned up, and your diaper needs to be changed. I mean, it's kind of messy, you know. It's this kind of thing. I don't want anybody changing anybody's diapers in that sense. But you know what I mean. It's this, this idea that we kind of fall and stumble. I think about it like a puppy, right? They're all excited and they're stepping on their ears and they, they kind of knock things over. That's kind of this idea when you have a, someone who's brand new. They just want to learn and grow. And guess what? They end up you know, doing things maybe differently or maybe even things that they shouldn't do. But they, they just want and they're hungry for God, right? And as you mature and grow... There's this idea of steadiness and consistency that happens in maturity that takes place. But understanding that conversion, it doesn't go like conversion, then disciple, then uh, discipleship, and then disciple maker. That is all one. So when we come to faith in Christ, we are born again, we're converted. Now we, we are a disciple of Christ, and we begin to be discipled. Now, what does that look like? Well, immediately it means getting into the Word of God. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing comes by the Word of God. You cannot please God apart from faith. So guess what? Your faith will increase as you read the Word of God. It will change you. You'll be transformed by the renewing of your mind. 
You begin to pray. You begin to talk. That is, that's all it is, talking to God. And guess what? You come here on a Sunday morning experience where you get around other believers, but this is just baby steps. Guess what? We're starting today. We're starting small groups. Small groups is that next step in community. It's this idea of studying the word together, talking about it, discussing And we talked about this last week, this idea if you isolate yourself, that is dangerous. It's very clear in, in Genesis 2 that man was not meant to be alone. We are not made to be islands. We're wired for relationships. God called us into relationships with him first and with each other. And so as we talked about last week, it's this idea of strategic multiplication. It's God's game plan. Advancing God's kingdom by making disciples and empowering leaders that plant churches wherever God calls. This is what we see. And I mentioned this earlier, but what about this radical thought? What if people are interested in Christ because they are interested in the Christ in you? Right? What if people are interested in Christ because they're interested in the Christ in you? See, there's this reality is that there's no commands in Scripture for non-believers to go to church or go to be around God's people, if you will. But there are plenty of ones for Christians to go out in the world and be among those who do not believe in Jesus yet. There's tons of them. Let me, let me describe ways that God uses discipleship in our life. Titus 2.4, older women are to train younger women, or I would like to say mature women. I stay out of trouble that way. I don't know what they were thinking writing older women here. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> Mature women are to train younger women. Uh, we see that happen. I see it happen on all different levels. We see Paul, if you will, a more mature believer, training Timothy, right? So we see older, more mature, and it doesn't always mean that someone's necessarily older than you. I've seen people come to faith later in life, and there's actually a guy who's younger than them, but they're more mature in the faith. They've been walking with Christ for a while, and this person's a brand new believer. Also, we see in Ephesians 6.4, before was 2 Timothy 2.2, Ephesians uh, 6.4, fathers are to train their children. We've talked about that many times. The father is to lead that. It doesn't mean they have to do everything. My wife does an incredible job about on, on weekdays where she spends a little time at breakfast with our girls talking about the scripture, talking about what we believe, talking about the gospel and believing the truth over the lies, right? I don't do that. She does that. But there's other times throughout the week that I get to do it in the evenings. And so it's just working together if you're a couple. But it's the idea that father needs to take leadership in that and give direction and make sure it's happening. And then Matthew 28, 20, where missionaries are to teach the nations everything Jesus commanded, we just read. And in Hebrews 3, 13, all Christians are to exhort each other every day to avoid sin and to stir each other up in love and good works, Hebrews 10, 24 through 25. So it's everyone's responsibility here to be disciple makers. Now, you may still be in the process of being a disciple, but... Guess what? You are still influencing someone, I promise you. If you're here and you're an older sibling, you've got younger siblings. If you're here and you're in school, you've got kids that are younger than you. You're going to influence them. I remember having a conversation just a year or so ago, right in this section right here, with a little kid that was in fifth grade. And he was all at the table, all by himself. And it wasn't because he wanted to be there, he had to be there. 
And we were having a little discussion. And when the boy got up to go to his side, another little boy came and told me, he says, he's not very nice to me on the bus. I said, all right, I got this. Started talking to him a little bit. I said, hey, do you like superheroes? Yeah, I like superheroes. Started telling me all the superheroes. I said, you know why you like superheroes? He said, no. I said, because they defend the weak. And I said, they come and rescue people in bad situations. I said, have you ever thought about the fact that you're on the bus and you're older, that you need to be the one defending all the young kids, not hurting them, and you need to go in and step in when the situation is not good and make it right? His wheels were turning. And later on, a little kid came over and said, my friend liked what you had to say to him. Listen, that's all, these are little things where God puts you in a place, right? You may not be able to present the full gospel, but you can be an influence because you don't know how those seeds may be maturate, may be taking root in people's lives to say, hey, there's a different way of living this life. And I know the designer, I know the creator, and he, his purpose and design is to live his way, not my way, and do his will, not my will. And so understanding some of these things that take place. And then we see Acts 18, 20 24 and 26, where Priscilla and Aquila, they, were, they took a moment. It was just like this little moment where they actually, if you will, they corrected Apollos on his teaching. Think about that for a moment. Listen, if you're a teacher in this room, you're a small group leader, a teacher, I've said this from the pulpit. If I say something wrong that's not scriptural, please come to me. I've got guys in this room that already have the freedom to do it, and you have it too, because I'm a shepherd, but I'm also a sheep. Guess what? I struggle with sin just like you struggle with sin. We have, we have marriage struggles just like anybody else. We have financial struggles just like anybody else. Just, that was the mistake they made right here at the beginning where they tried to worship Paul and Apollos, I mean Paul and Barnabas, right? And guess what? Many times this is what we're doing in churches. We're elevating pastors instead of Jesus. That's where we're getting ourselves in trouble. And so we, we need to make sure that Jesus is the center of the church. He's the one we're making disciples after, not ourselves. Listen, every Christian should be helping unbelievers become believers by showing them Christ. Every Christian should be helping others, believers, grow to be more and more mature. Every Christian in here should be seeking to get help from, for themselves from others to keep on growing. Every church should think through and how these biblical disciple-making processes work in corporate life. That's the reality. We, again, that's how well, we set up uh, community groups. That's just the beginning of what we believe true discipleship happens. When you look at the life of Jesus, he had the crowds. He had the congregation, if you will. He had the community. He had the core. He had the close. In other words, he had the big crowds, hundreds, thousands of people, right? Then he had the congregations, like 120. He had the community, which was 12. And then he had like the core, Peter, James, and John. But then he had the one-on-one, like the woman at the well, the woman called her in adultery. You know, he had these one-on-one moments with people, and they were rare. But he spent 90% of his time around the 12. 90%. Think about that. So if you spend time, you need to spend the majority of your time around small group people that will spur you toward love and good deeds, and then turn, you can spur them. And you can practice the gospel because you're going to offend them. They're going to offend you because you're jacked up and they're jacked up. Just deal with it. Make it a part of your everyday life to forgive and be forgiven. Okay? That's a part of life. That's how Jesus says we need to operate. That is the gospel. If Jesus, 
who was perfect, stepped out of heaven and put flesh and blood on and came and died for me and you. And it says that while he was still an enemy, he died for us. Can't you forgive your neighbor who is just jacked up as you? That's the way the gospel works. So as we walk through this life, as we practice the gospel, as we're, listen, we need to understand, I think many times we're waiting around for somebody to disciple us, or we're waiting around to find who that person is to disciple. There's a story, Philip and the eunuch. Now, this is this exception, not the rule. When we see Philip go down, shares the gospel with the eunuch, he gets saved, he gets baptized, and passes them on. He had the scroll, guess what? He had the Holy Spirit. That's the beginning of the discipleship process, right there. He had prayer. And you want to become disciple? You want to be disciple? Begin to get in the Word, begin to pray, begin to uh, gather around with other believers, primarily in small groups. Okay? I will tell you this. If I had my choice as a shepherd, I would say if you had to choose small groups over this time, pick small groups. Because that's where you're going to be challenged, that's where you're going to be loved, encouraged. That's what I would encourage you to do, okay? Now, I, we want you to be here on corporate worship. I think it's biblical. I think it's, it, it says that they met right after the day of Pentecost. They met for breaking of bread and worship and the teachings of the apostles. Absolutely, it's necessary. But this idea of community is huge. And that's where you truly begin both to be disciple and you begin to disciple others. Do you realize that there are people, there are kids that come and say something to me? Maybe it's an encouraging word. Maybe it's something that they, they thought was kind of funny, but realize it, it cut to the heart on me because I realized I made a mistake there. God uses those people. He uses unbelievers to sometimes get my attitude straight, right? I know the other day when that conversation happened, I thought to myself, how many times have I shut people out or somehow acted unloving toward them that I didn't know because they messed up my order at a fast food place or a restaurant? Now, if they just found out and they saw that I was a pastor or they found out I was associated with a church, they're just like, oh, that's the Jesus you want me to follow because you got mad that I messed up your meal? See what I'm saying? I mean, there's things here that we need to think through as we begin because we act graciously when somebody screws up our order or when somebody gives us, does something. When we show that grace and mercy, we're able, or we even come back and you know what? I got mad over that. that was, I was wrong. I was completely wrong. A meal is just a meal. I should have never treated you like that. Do you know how far that goes? I can tell you when I screw up at home and I go back to my daughters and say, Daddy was wrong, I can see there is a, there is a wall that comes down. One, that gives them the right to make mistakes. Two, they realize that their daddy is just as jacked up as they are. And they, Jesus, daddy needs Jesus just as much as them. There's something about being vulnerable to others and telling them that you messed up. There it brings about maturity. It brings about the beginning, if you will, of showing them the grace of God and beginning to disciple, if you will, in their life, the planting of those seeds. Now, the reality is this. None of us are ever going to arrive. And so for us to think about discipling others, we always think, well, we've got to have our act all together. But if you've got someone that's near you or you see on a regular basis that you can influence for the gospel— in some ways, you can disciple them. And there's people that may be coming to you and say, will you disciple me? Or you may need to go to someone else and say, will you spend time with me? Can you, can you show me more what it means back? And that's good. That's what we want you to do. That's what Jesus did. He modeled for us. But guess what? There's responsibility on both sides. It's both our responsibility to reach out and try to find people 
to pour into, but it's also our responsibility to reach back. I'll never forget when I was at Liberty, I was studying school. I remember a guy in our class, a professor, and he was a guy I looked up to, and he goes, you know what? I found out that if I wanted to be discipled by someone, and I really saw Jesus in that person, I wanted to know I had to pursue them. I had to figure out where they were at, and I had to just go after them and say, hey, will you just give me some, some of your time? I don't want to know what it looks like to follow Jesus. So it's both responsibility of those people to reach back, if you will, and those people to reach out. So it's that locking of arms to make disciples, to be a disciple. It's this idea of back and forth. So let me ask you this question. This is the big question for today. We're all making disciples. What kind of disciple are you making? Because we're all teaching something about the gospel. We're teaching maybe it's just a, just a cheap prayer, cheap grace, right? Oh, yeah, I go to church, or I, I, got, I got dunked, and, you know, I'm good, okay? Not around God's people, not in the Word, not no changed life, no grace, right? Or, or maybe it's this idea, oh, yeah, man, I, well, God, you know, it's going good, I'm following God. When it's not, I'm, you know, I'm out. What are, what are we teaching people around us about the gospel? We're making disciples, all of us. We're having an influence around people, I promise you. Someone's looking up to you. Somebody's watching you. If you're here and you claim to be Christ, you need to be a disciple of Jesus. You need to not just follow Jesus. You need to not just be discipled, you need to be discipling others in Jesus, making disciples. Not just about a card or a ticket to heaven, right? It's about bringing heaven here on earth. It's about living out the kingdom, about being Jesus with skin on. That's what we're asking. That's what Paul is declaring here, to live out that type of life. Will you stand? Maybe you hear... And you say, that sounds great. I, I, I want that grace. I want that forgiveness. I want to be a disciple. But, but I don't know how to start that. There will be people here this morning that will pray with you, encourage you, help you with that. Maybe here this morning you just realize that, you know, you've been making disciples, but it's, it's not the gospel. It's not the kingdom of God. It's not what's written here in Scripture. It's your own version of it. Or maybe here this morning... You realize that you need to maybe reach back, if you will, to maybe help disciple someone. Or maybe you need to reach out to somebody to be discipled. Whatever that is, we want to pray with you and pray for you. Father, thank you so much for our time this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you that, God, you use it in a powerful way in our lives. God, would you allow us just to fall more in love with you, be disciple, God, to, to be a follower to be an apprentice, to be a learner of you, but God, also to be disciple makers, where we make disciples that make disciples that make disciples. Father, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.